Historically, U.S. firms dominated the private security company market in places like Afghanistan and Somalia. But in recent years, they've been emerging in other countries as well. Warlords and militias have restyled themselves as private security companies. And in Russia, we've seen the incredible consequences of PMC Wagner rising as a force to challenge the reputation of the regular military. Mercenaries were common in the European Middle Ages and contract warfare the norm. The proliferation of private military forces is having a profound effect on international relations, meaning that the 21st century may have more in common with the 12th century. Dr. Sean McFate is a strategist and expert on international relations. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, Syracuse University's Maxwell School and the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs. His career began as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. He served under Stan McChrystal and David Petraeus and graduated from elite training programs such as the Jungle Warfare School in Panama. Sean has held many roles in a long and distinguished career, including private military contractor, business consultant, and author of several successful books. And of course, we will be putting links into the video description of those. They come extremely highly recommended. Dr. Mafate has also been a consultant to the Pentagon, the CIA, and Hollywood, and his writings have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. And he's been interviewed on CNN, Fox News, et cetera, et cetera. And most recently, Sean, uh, this whole Wagner stuff has uh, taken an inordinate amount of your time, hasn't it? Talking on the media. Yes, and it's wonderful to be back on your podcast too, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted to have you back. Uh, our last conversation was incredibly thrilling. And then at the end of it, I thought, well, we didn't even get on to mercenaries. Well, this is the opportunity now uh, with the incredible events taking place and a certain amount of confusion. I mean, do you get the impression that the media press and even analysts and Russian experts are really, many of them clutching at straws, unable to really interpret the events they're seeing? Yes, I think the events of uh, late June when Wagner Group marched on Moscow uh, bewildered the world and woke up the world to mercenaries, which, you know, let's face it, for the past you know year or so, experts, Russia experts, conflict experts have been downplaying Wagner the entire time. But this you can't ignore because the last two guys to march on Moscow were Hitler and Napoleon. This is sort of epoch-making events, isn't it? Um, and the news emerging this week, I think, adds an extra layer of intrigue because Prigozhin is apparently back in Russia. His jet has been logged, flying all over the place. Uh, and apparently a whole ton of money that was confiscated in the wake of the mutiny. Let's call it a mutiny because I think many Russian experts are referring to it as that rather than a, than a coup. He's actually had this money returned to him and apparently there's also a rumor that he's had munitions and equipment returned to him. Now, this is extraordinary for somebody who marched a military column and got within, you know, 200 kilometers of the Kremlin. It's right. Well, you know, there's there's so much that Western analysts and media commentators have gotten wrong. Um, and I don't have time to catalog all that we can get into that. But one of the problems is, um, you know, they think of 
Prigozhin, who is the 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 oligarch who owns the Varden Group, he also owns the Troll Factory, uh, the Internet Research Agency of Disinformation. Is they think of him like a descendant, uh, like a you know, like Navalny, who's a political opponent to um, to Putin. But the difference between Navalny and Prigozhin is that Prigozhin has an army at his back. And that makes him very political. So rather than thinking thinking of him as like some sort of, you know, Russian uh, opponent of Putin, you should think of him as like a an ancient Rome, a Roman general marching on Rome. That is kind of what it's like. And you know, Russia. We could talk about how did Putin, who's very clever, very Machiavellian, how did he get in this box? But I think what the the larger, I mean, all the criminologists who are watching this, they have um, they have a very twentieth century bias of how states have the monopoly of violence, how you know the world that we learned about in grade school, how states are the basic geopolitical unit of the world. Only they can wage war. Only they can make international law. We think that is timeless and universal because that's what we were taught. And the 20th century is all about that. But in fact, that's been the exception to the rule. Throughout all of human history, nobody has had a monopoly of violence. It's only in the last 200 years that states emerged as having, a, of having their own national armies, being in charge of the world. And that's just been a 200-year exception. And now the pendulum is swinging back to normal, where basically, you know, force is something that anybody can, can create, buy, or rent. And that's the difference between what's going on in Russia and what I think classically trained Russian experts understand. Is it also a consequence of the failure of the state? Because what we saw in the 20th century is incredibly mighty states using technology to uh, you know, increase the efficiency of bureaucracies and so on and extend their reach into areas of life that were never the case you know, previously. Um, but in Russia, and to an extent Ukraine, we see a state that is weak, actually. We think of it as strong. But that is a, a sort of facade to hide incredible brittleness and weakness behind the scenes. Isn't it also true that something like Wagner is a phenomenon that Putin needs uh, to counteract the sort of sclerotic inability of his own army and administration to carry out his orders? He needs these private contractors to grease the wheels of the economy, the military, and, and carry out violence efficiently, which the state cannot deliver. Yes. Well, this is really the core question um, that launched me on this whole path 20 years ago. So um, because the answer is actually no, um, one would think that, but it's not the case. So just some background. I, um, you know, I was uh, like most I was in this industry for many years, um, private military contractor, mercenary. It's really a euphemism to describe the same phenomenon, which is, um, you know, uh, an armed civilian fighting in a foreign conflict, chiefly for profit. Um, and, you know, that's what, and, you know, let's face it, mercenaries are the second oldest profession. And what I, and like most, almost like all sort of 
I'll call myself a private military contractor. So I don't have, you know, the, the Hague police try to go after me, but um, uh, not that they exist, but if they did still, um, they, you know, I, I came from a national military. I was a paratrooper in the U S army. Then I got out and I went to the so-called dark side um, and I worked in Africa well, I was a global contractor. I'm not one of these just Iraq, Afghanistan guys. I was a global contractor. My er, my early contracts were all U.S. government. And I found myself doing things that were, you know, traditionally CIA or special operations forces. And then, you know, and then I got out and did, I was a free agent for many years. And, but I remember thinking distinctly, and this was like 20 years ago, that, you know, why, I would understand like why rich states that don't have a strong military, say like the United Arab Emirates might hire military contractors, right? They have money, they don't have a good military. But why would a superpower like the United States do it, which has a strong military? Why would Russia, which is has problems, it still has one of the biggest militaries in the world and it's nuclear. Why would they turn to Wagner Group and other Russian private military companies? And this is kind of one of the mysteries, um, you know, and the answer is at least two reasons for why the, the U.S. and Russia. First of all, the first reason is that, you know, is when you're Russia fighting an unpopular war in Ukraine or you are um, United States fighting Iraq and Afghanistan, what you quickly find is that you need to conceal the costs of the war from your domestic base. And we think of Putin as an autocrat, and he is. He's not like he's elected. So he's not as sensitive to elections. He's not as sensitive to elections at all, unlike UK and Americans. But he's still, in his mind, he has the ghosts of the peace movement in the 1980s in Russia. Uh, at that point, the USSR was fighting a, a deeply unpopular war in Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the only successful peace movement in the USSR history was in the end by the mothers of dead soldiers asking, where are their dead soldiers? And he was a young KGB guy. And, you know, that was one of the one of the big reasons why the USSR collapsed was that war. So, you know, as a way to, to avoid that, what Putin did is when he invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, which he thought, of course, would be, you know, a few days only, he used Wagner Group mercenaries and also conscripts from the periphery of Russia, not from the core, because Russians like British, like Americans, they don't, you know, they care about dead soldiers coming home in body bags, but they don't care about dead contractors. So he relied on Wagner Group contractors because it was a way to disguise the blood costs of the war. And, in, and this is, you know, one of the many reasons why superpowers and military powers rely on contractors because it's a way to sort of, you know, Dis, you know, to disguise. Um, so, but then as the war ground on, Russia, like the United States, became increasingly, um, you know, dependent 
on contractors. And just like the United States in 2010, most of the boots on the grounds in Iraq and Afghanistan were contractors. Most of the KIAs were contractors. And suddenly you're fighting a war with contractors. And that represents challenges, doesn't it? And something I learned uh, actually earlier this week, which was, I thought, deeply interesting, was that um, in Vietnam, similarly to what Russia is doing, a lot of people from ethnic minorities, poor areas, more rural areas, predominantly were sort of sent to fight in Vietnam. I mean, there were others as well. Um, but I believe after Vietnam, a law was introduced that meant you couldn't just do that, that you had to draw people from all walks of life and not hide the losses uh, away from, say, your literate urban centres or people more likely to protest. But this is exactly what Putin is doing, isn't he? He's trying to limit the impact of conscription. And there is still rolling conscription. We know there's plenty of evidence that people are still being conscripted, but they're not generally being pulled en masse from Moscow, St. Petersburg, Ekaterinburg. He's trying to mask the impact of the war, isn't he? He is. And we all remember fall of 2022 when he announced a national conscription and the huge exodus of young Russian fleeing to Europe, fleeing to the stands, you know. Um, and it's a deeply unpopular war. I mean, it's even deeply unpopular amongst his own elites. And I think now he's in a box, uh, Putin's in a box, because on one hand, he's got Prigozhin and the Wagner group who want him out. On the other hand, there's also the Siloviki, which are the uh, the elites, the the sort of the the heads of the Russian military establishment who who also despise you know Prigozhin and vice versa. And we can also talk about why that's the case. But they also have, I think, you know. They also are, are done with this unpopular war and um, Prigozhin and, and Putin. Um, so, you know, in some ways, you know, Putin has surrounded himself through his own ineptitudes with people who are thinking about his, quote, retirement, end quote. His enforced accidental retirement probably through some kind of window-related incident. Um, <laughs> what you mentioned earlier was fascinating. This comparison, because I hadn't thought of Prigozhin as a kind of renegade Roman general, but this is an incredible irony, isn't it? Because, you know, Russia, one of these concepts of the Ruski Mir is as the third Rome, but it seems they're bringing back Roman politics, but not quite in the way they expected. Um, yeah. Now, Prigozhin, you know, rather than comparing him to, you know, a Roman patrician, which he's kind of clearly not, he's a yes. former convict, he might be very bright and so on, but he doesn't fit in with that Silviki kind of hierarchy. Is he more comparable to, say, the first barbarian empire, emperor <laughs> of the Roman Empire? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I, I well, you know, it, think of it this way, the so for me, I saw the, um, as one who has immersed himself in the deep study of mercenaries and how they change world order, uh, which was, was the subject of my first book uh, 10 years ago called The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and How They Change World Order, which predicts this event, you know, and predicts the last 10 years of events, um, that there's an ancient feud between like mercenaries and ideological soldiers. Uh, so, and that's what we're seeing right now in Russia. We have the Siloviki, 
who represent the professional, you know, uh, soldier intelligence serving the state, uh, you know, sort of quote patriotism, or at least <laughs> what that looks like in Russia. And then you have this outsider to the Siloviki. You have Prigozhin, as you described, as an ex-criminal who's a wheeler and dealer and slippery, and and they absolutely despise each other. And this 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 feud is one of the oldest features of private warfare, meaning like sort of mercenary warfare. Um, the feud between knights and mercenaries was a common problem in the Middle Ages. And, you know, popes used to hire mercenary armies and they, you know, have some knights in there. And sometimes the knights and the mercenaries would end up on the same side killing each other. And the reason for this feud is actually quite organic. It's because we think of soldiers as wives and mercenaries as prostitutes. Soldiers are supposed to be duty, honor, country, selfless service. Uh, it's why we say thank you for your service in the airport to them. And then here comes a mercenary and turns that warrior ethos on its head and makes it purely a transaction like love, you know, when you look at with a prostitute. And, you know, some people are fine with that. Other people, you know, basically it's an affront to the other's warrior ethos. And that's really at the core. It's not just that Pergosian's not in the mold of the Siloviki, which that is true, but it comes down to this deeper profession of arms between wives and prostitutes. And that, you know, uh, in March of, la of this past year, 2023, I wrote um, an article and I've been shopping this idea in Washington for six months now, like rather than sending, you know, billions of dollars of tanks and F-16s to Ukraine, which won't do anything, as we have seen in their lackluster counteroffensive. I mean, a few tanks is not going to win the war. Like, no weapon system is going to win the war. Um, instead, let's turn the strategies of mercenaries and private warfare against Putin. Let's drive a wedge between Wagner and the Siloviki to try to get them to fight each other. And they take themselves off the battlefield in Ukraine. And that's how Ukraine can come out of this thing. Um, but, you know, that's not what happened. <laughs> but now it was... attention? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I... <laughs> because... yeah well, it, it got some attention, but not, <laughs> not in the right places. So so um, it was published in Newsweek um, mm -hmm. in March, and there was a German translation and a German uh, paper equivalent thereof. Um, and but the the problem is that um, the type of warfare I'm describing is 20th century warfare, and well, the type of warfare I'm describing 12th century warfare, and all of our generals and policymakers are looking at the 20th century. And there's a saying that generals always want to fight the last war they won. Now, if we're being honest, the last time the United States of America won a big war was World War II, 70 years ago. And that is our paradigm for warfare, is what we call conventional war. Think of you know World War II, army on army, state on state, no non-state actors, et cetera. It's big on big. And um, they are incapable... Our four stars are incapable of thinking about war that doesn't look like Napoleon. They're incapable of thinking about 
like mercenary warfare where you where market strategy blends with um you know military strategy where ceos today might be more adept strategic thinkers than four stars in this type of warfare but they also don't understand economic warfare either which is another ancient form of warfare because you know, in the cold, well, the U.S. at least it wasn't a it was a rising power in the twenty. It wasn't really a power, uh, but in the Cold War, there was no economic warfare because you had two economic blocks. You had the communist block and the free trade block. Well, now we're one big free trade block, and nobody can think about economic warfare beyond sanctions, which is just one arrow in the quiver. So there's a lot of strategic, and there's other things too. There's a lot of strategic catch up. The West needs to do, you know, in terms of its strategic IQ, and mercenaries are are one of these places, and um, and so what happens is, of course, is that you reach, you hit the wall of cognitive dissonance, of where people like, well, they can't get their heads around it, so we're going to do what we know. We're going to send them tanks. We're going to think about, you know, you know, Bakhmut, the, the Battle of Bakhmut, like it's Stalingrad. We're going to think of Ukraine like a conventional war, like it's 44. Well, meanwhile, they ignore the very unconventional 21st century things like mercenaries, disinformation, which both Kiev and Moscow are doing a lot of. Um, Russia's military strategy is one of terrorism, like Al-Qaeda, where they deliberately try to flatten cities and massacre civilians to instill fear, which is what they did in Grozny and Aleppo. And so all these like non-conventional, non-traditional war things are really predominant, but people choose to ignore them. And let's not forget that generals who choose to ignore the changing character of war they get sucker punched by the future. This is what happened with the French and their Maginot Line. They thought the future of war after World War I would be more trench warfare. So they built the greatest trench system in history, the Maginot Line, only get outflanked and taken down in just six weeks of World War II. And I'm worried that the West is, is going to, something will like that will happen, not like that dramatic, but, but I think that um, Pergosian represents this threat not just to Russia, but he's not a one-off. He's part of a larger trend of growing mercenaries. And if we don't get wise to this returning way of warfare, we will lose control the way that Putin, who's a savvy player, lost control and may be dead this time next year. And of course, Russia has shown that it may be crude in its tactics. It may have no real strategy to speak of, but they have weaponized everything to borrow you know, the title from Mark Galliotti's book. They've weaponized fuel, they've weaponized energy, they've weaponized literally everything they can touch. They've even weaponized their own culture and traditions to pump out propaganda. Um, Ukraine obviously doesn't want to play the dirty game in that it doesn't want to spread lies. But as you say, they have been effectively using information, uh, but quite careful not to soil themselves by you know, pumping out uh, falsehoods. And the point you made about no one listening to turning the Wagnerites, you know, on their master, as it were, right. um, there are many sort of rumors, especially amongst the sort of Russian Ukrainian commentators, that actually Ukrainian intelligence may have played a role in convincing uh, Prigozhin to do this coup. They may have actually created the impression that he had more support than he actually did. I don't know what the truth of that is. But there's some interesting stuff going on there, isn't there? There's a lot more complex things we don't know about. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, in warf in warfare at the strategic level, it's not just military military. It's everything on everything. You have to weaponize everything. And and Mark, who's a friend and colleague. He didn't invent this term, weaponization of everything, but he's absolutely right. Um, and that's and one of our problems in the West is we think of warfare as a mainly kinetic affair of, you know, bullet on bullet. If, if bullets aren't flying through the air, it's not warfare, which is deeply misguided. And uh, the Ukrainians have have launched a very sophisticated disinformation campaign with more restraint on them than Russia because of the Western, you know, the, on the Western influence. But they have done these things. I mean, we all remember Snake Island. This is where, you know, the, the Moskva, the, the capital ship of the Russian Navy, now on the bottom of the Black Sea, which is great, Um you know, uh, came across this small island in the Black Sea, and it had this squad of Ukrainian soldiers who gave the finger to the Moskva, and they got annihilated and became martyrs, and they made like stamps out of it, and you know, it just, and it turns up a couple of weeks later, they reappeared, you know, and it was a complete ruse of Kiev to get support, you know, and of course the news cycle moves on, and you know, so Kiev, you know because its president is not an oligarch, but was elected as a joke as a, of an actor who played an oligarch, a president on TV, you know, Zelensky and his crowd have been very clever. I mean, it tells you like, if you're, you know, if you live in an information age as we do, and where information becomes a pillar of war, don't take on a clever comedian. You know? <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, Putin, Russia was known as the in, as the disinformation superpower, and they, they've been totally outflanked by by Ukrainian uh, information front. Um, and you know, we don't. There are speculations that that Ukraine has tried to drive that wedge between the the Wagner group and the Russian army. And it's also notes it's also noted that when Wagner marched on Moscow, there was precious little resistance from the Russian military. Right? I mean he got within, I don't know how many kilometers of Moscow. Um and you know it's and Putin did send uh armed like helicopters after him to kill him, to assassinate him, and the Wagner group shot them down. Um, so, and on that ride up, you know, Putin and Prigozhin were negotiating the entire ride. And I'm sure that Prigozhin was probably negotiating with other people too. Maybe even Zelensky. I don't know. But this is the problem of mercenary warfare is that they are ultimately free agents. This is the problem that Machiavelli wrote about in 1513 in his, his book, The Prince, which I'm sure many of your listeners have read, who disdains mercenaries. But you know, but look, Machiavelli was kind of like Putin. He was an he was an inept handler of mercenaries too, so he had a lot of sour grapes. But we can we can talk about that later. But yeah, so you know, Wagner, when you're fighting um, against mercenaries, you should use market strategies in addition to military ones to win. And this ties in with something uh, Andres Soldatov was writing about last week, and he suggests that. You know, the Western media, it's a coup, it's this, it's that. He said it's nothing more than a contract negotiation, slightly more rigorous than the kind of contract negotiations we're used to. Not everyone, yes. you know, drives a military force, uh, uh, but essentially it's a fight, not necessarily 
to completely take over the country, but it's a fight for privileges, for contracts, for rights, for resources. And essentially, it's a fight between Prigozhin and the military who are trying to do a hostile takeover of his privileges. Um, and this is his way of pushing back, whereas we are seeing it perhaps in, as you say, a much more 20th century, more sort of black and white kind of version of it. Right. So we are seeing the renegotiation of a contract. Um, and, you know, this is as old as private warfare itself, too. And that mercy. So here's the problem with private warfare. Um, it has always been one of of safety and control. And the reason is, is because in private warfare, when I say private warfare, there's like public warfare, state on state, right? That's World War II, conventional war, traditional war, quote unquote, traditional. Private warfare is when you have like mercenaries involved and it could be uh, all private or semi-private. But the problem is contract enforcement, because if the mercenaries or the masters rip each other off, which is the oldest tune in this type of warfare, the only way to resolve it is through treachery. And let's not, you know, let's not get caught in the trap of Machiavelli where mercenaries rip off their masters, which happens, happened to Machiavelli in 1506 in the war against Pisa, but also masters rip off their mercenaries a lot too. It's a two-way street of ripoffs. And that is what uh, we just witnessed uh, last, you know, last June. Uh, we witnessed a very ancient problem with private warfare but because none of us are used to it we think of it as a coup we think of it as a mutiny we find all these other rationalizations of what it is but it's simply a, re a contract problem between a master and a mercenary playing itself out what it also does though it sort of I mean, to those like you and, and and a few other commentators who are perhaps sort of saying interesting things about this, it shows the degradation of the Russian state from, yeah. let's say, you know, under communist times, um, it, you know, we may we may not like it, um, but it did have a degree of, you know, it had different organs of power. It had the trappings um, of of a state. It was a kind of theocracy, as it were, a communist theocracy, but it had some of the trappings. Of a, of a modern state. Then we move to Putin, where, you know, that it's essentially moving towards the mafia state. But there you've got a representative of the of the old system who's an arbiter between criminal elements. So it's a kind of hybrid system. Are we now moving into the next stage of failed state where actually those criminals who previously lubricated the economy under communism, then they took over you know, much of the resources uh, under Putin, are, are these criminal elements now going to become the state entirely? Like the 1990s, uh, perhaps. I mean, I think, that, you know, it's it's funny. We, in the last, you know, 10 years, we've seen the power of disinformation uh, by autocracies used against democracies, right? In elections, and they try to swing elections and... And we always lament, oh, democracies are open societies. Uh, we're so vulnerable to these sort of uh, dirty tricks of autocracies, especially disinformation. Um, but, you know, uh, democracies are open and vulnerable, but they're also resilient. Autocracies by nature are powerful and strong, but brittle internally. And this is true whether it's, you know, Putin 
Xi Jinping in China or Tito in Yugoslavia or Saddam Hussein in Iraq. I mean, these guys, it's not a it's not like even a pyramid of power. It's a telephone pole of power. At the top is an autocrat and his lieutenants. And um, it's a very and they're all worried about their you know, their retirement plan, if you will, you know, are they going to, are they going to go out uh, asleep dead in their bed peacefully? Like, you know, Mugabe in Zimbabwe or Castro in Cuba, or are they going to get, you know, bullet in the head, you know, or, you know, like, or Saddam Hussein, you know? So I, I think that Putin is thinking about this. And I think that it doesn't take much. If you can shake that telephone pole, the Potemkin village starts to shed and then because it's a it's an apex predator regime i mean totalitarian uh regimes are all sort of like kill or be killed people are starting to think well i got to choose a, you know i got to choose a side early and i got to be in the winning side and they start looking around and their loyalty goes out the window um whether it's you know stalin's death in 1953 or or maybe prigozhin this year so what we've seen is that Putin has mismanaged. Uh, and also, one of the leadership styles of, auto of autocrats is to play rivals off each other. This is just the way it works in autocratic regimes. This is classic Putin, right? This is exactly yeah, what Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's classic Stalin, his mentor, hero. Um, it's not his mentor, but it's hero. But this is also endemic to how uh, autocracies function, by and large. I mean, um. Uh, a PhD in international relations and political science. This is this is not unusual. In autocracies, it's not in, institutions don't matter as much as as individuals do, and individuals can be very fickle and Machiavellian, frankly. Uh, and Machiavelli, let's face it, is a theorist of autocracies. You know, he kind of lays it out loud in the Prince, um, uh, at least in that book. So, you know, I I would expect right now that Prigozhin has exposed. Um, Putin's brittleness to the entire world. And maybe part of his plan in renegotiating his strategy is just to do that. And, you know, there's got to be Siloviki, I think, who are probably tired of this war, who are who see that Putin is dragging Russia down for Putin's own legacy as neo-Czar. And again, if you want to be czar and, and resurrect the Russian Empire, not the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire, you have to start with Ukraine. I mean, just if you're going to resurrect the, say, British Empire, you got to start with Ireland. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I'm not saying UK would never do that, but like, that's what Putin is trying to do. And so I think that, um, you know, Putin's in a date. This is the most dangerous part of the war to date because it risks a Russian civil war in the midst of a war in Ukraine. And I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but who knows what lies in the past ahead? I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think a lot of the commentary about the last, you know, this June's events um, have been really myopic and see this as a mutiny. And it's it's a it's a it's a much deeper cut than that. The implications are a lot more perverse than that. And also, Prigozhin has a lot more options than people think, which we can go into. But um, it's also a wake up call to the rest of the world that mercenaries are. This is not a one off. This is part of a larger trend that has been going on for thirty years, and that mercenaries are back. 
and a world awash in mercenaries is a world embroiled in more war. And that should be alarming to everybody. And this idea of, you know, Putin really presiding over a brittle state, isn't also true that, that what this, uh, whatever that was, the mutiny or whatever, it has shown Russia to be not just, you know, incredibly uh, fragile, but also it's shown up our impression of Russia. You know, we still have this image of it as a huge, mighty state, uh, uh, you know, a pioneer of technology in the Cold War, or at least pioneer of stolen technology. Um and we haven't quite caught up with where it is at the moment. One common hater describe Russia now as becoming a banana republic, just without <laughs> the bananas. Right. It's a it's more like a banana split with cold ice cream. But uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, they're they're um, one of the the easy traps of history is to read too much into the past and the present. So when we think of a, a resurgent Russia. People sometimes in the back of their mind think of the Soviet Union in the 1960s, which was a powerhouse, rather than the the mafia state of the 2000s that it is. And, you know, Putin came in and he wrangled the oligarchs and he wrangled the mafia. And he and that was the social contract he made with the Russian people in 1999. And that's why Russians have been pretty loyal to Putin throughout. It's like, you know, you saved us from the oligarchs, like you saved us from the mafia and we're going to be loyal to you. Except now that Ukraine has broken that social contract because he they the, the, the social contract was we'll give you our loyalty and we'll do what you want to make, you know, to make Russia great again, you know, and Ukraine has done the has backfired. And so it has not just exposed that this is not the Soviet Union of, of your it is also um, it is also deeply damaged Putin's own internal legitimacy. And um, it's something that, again, if clever strategists in the West and Ukraine were, you know, how do we hasten that? And I think we have people trying to, to do that, but we have we're investing, it seems, more money, at least in sending huge weapon systems to Ukraine that are both ineffective and dangerous because the first time a Ukrainian F-16 bombs Moscow NATO is going to be blamed for it, whether it's our fault or not. Mm. And that is playing with nuclear war. And it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, the ambiguity about, you know, are we going to let Ukraine into NATO? Are we not? Of a decade ago could be said to be the precursor for this war. It's are we doing one thing or not has led to disaster. Uh, it, the argument could be made that if we just let NATO, you know, them into NATO 10 years ago, Russia wouldn't even have dared to go near them and now we're playing the same game it's like you're gonna you know attack these uh russian defensive emplacements they've had six months to build in places they're up to 30 kilometers deep you're gonna do this with the piecemeal equipment we've sent you with the troops we've trained up yes but you don't have enough and you'll get f-16s but only when the whole thing is over so we're forcing them to fight in a way that nato would never fight we're sort of sitting on the fence we're not equipping them to defeat russia comprehensively and yet we are disappointed when they don't make you know more gains yeah well there are many who have suggested that it's nato's fault i disagree with that um that's putin's line i don't agree with putin there are some who said if if we had let them join nato 10 years ago this war would never happen 
or we could all be glowing embers in a post-apocalypse world, right? I mean, that's, you know, take your choice. Let's flip a coin. Um, I agree that the West has been giving piecemeal, and I think this has been the wrong strategy. Well, let me, let me be more nuanced. So if your expectation is giving piecemeal tanks to Ukraine and that they're going to win the war, that's absurd. Now, who does that benefit? It, it benefits the military industrial complex of Europe and the U.S., which is the chief pushers of this because it's Santa Claus for them. You know, um, they basically all the Western militaries deplete their stock and have to buy a new stock. And and so that's corruption. That's corruption. And that very much exists. The other element of strategies, I think what Washington is doing, this is my opinion only, is that they don't want Ukraine to win. They want Ukraine to bleed Russia dry. They want to turn this into the Soviet-Afghan war that makes the, the Russian regime brittle so it self-implodes with other help. And that's been succeeding. And this strategy is give, give Ukraine enough rope that they can somewhat hang Russia, but they can't fully hang Russia, to, to drag it on. Um, of course, the problem with this is, you know, the America, United States is going to have an election in 2024. And if it's, God forbid, between Biden and Trump again, I mean, you can imagine how that will change foreign policy. And, and you can imagine how Russia is going to try to impact that election through their own disinformation. And But this is all, talk about weaponization of everything. That's what war has always been. This idea that war is just between military and military like Napoleon is absurd. You have to be clever and cunning and you got to, you know, anything you can use to your advantage, you got to fight dirty, essentially. Um, and you know which side Russia is going to choose between a, a Biden-Trump toss-up. And this is interesting. I mean, there's just, I definitely before we finish, I want to get to, you know, potential outcomes, Prigozhin, Lukashenko. I think that'll be the final question. But let's tackle this one here. So, if we're bleeding Russia, then we must have some idea of the end game. I haven't heard anyone really express it properly, um, but we must be preparing for Russia's collapse if that's what we're working towards. At the same time, you feel that Biden doesn't want Russia to collapse. We don't want that yeah. to descend into anarchy, just like we didn't really want Ukraine to secede from the USSR and try to keep the whole show together, even though that now seems patently absurd. Um, and Ukraine has been very cunning. They've created this sort of uh, renegade Russian army of insurgents. Almost certainly uh, it's not entirely independent and organic, I mean, to be cynical about it. Um, but they've been incredibly cunning. And that started, I think, to have a big impact. That's been tapered down now and you haven't heard anything more. Is it possible that, you know, Biden others have got uncomfortable with how unconventional Ukraine was prepared to go? I think, yes. I think the White House in Washington, D.C. is full of very 20th century strategic thinkers um, that they are looking at this through the prism of the last war we won. Uh, they think of great power competition like the concert of Europe in the 19th century. Um, they seem to be inured to the lessons even of the Cold War. I mean, it's it's remarkable, right? It's remarkable. I mean, that's a whole different podcast as to why that might be the case. And it's not just Washington. It's a lot of world capitals 
today. So um, Kiev has been plucky and they have been doing, um, they've been fighting a very 21st century war and like, look, they've been succeeding and not just because the US and others are giving them HIMARS and other, they've been outthinking Russia uh, and they've taken a, um, you know, they've been given a, let's face it, a, a crappy hand of cards and they've been playing it kind of wisely, not always, but pretty wisely. So, um, you know, I think, I think that Ukraine is a case study in 21st century war, the way that, say, the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s is a case study as to what's to come. The problem we have is that our Western media focuses more on the conventional war aspects like Bakhmut than on the unconventional war aspects like the disinformation, the economics, the mercenaries. And we are learning the Pentagon is learning all the wrong lessons. Um, and, you know, as I say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Or as, um, uh, well, I forget, I think, uh, I forget who it was, but she said, uh, uh, Dorothy Parker said, you can lead a whore to, uh, anyway, I can't, I can't, she has a clever pun on that, but I'll, I'll be, I don't want your we'll show to be that canceled. That sounds yeah, good. All right, all right. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think even Bakhmut, I mean, this is wild speculation, but Zelensky, when he was asked about the fall of Bakhmut, he said that Bakhmut didn't fall. And the Western press were sort of, oh, you know, Zelensky's put a foot wrong. He's told a blatant lie. This is really bad form, etc. I'm thinking, well, what if he didn't tell a lie? What if Bakhmut was surrendered to Prigozhin so Prigozhin could preserve his troops, get them out and start this counter coup because his rants against the origin of the war. His rants against the military were already gaining steam at that point. He was already locked into this struggle for survival uh, with other aspects of the Russian vertical. I know that is speculation, but do you think there's something maybe there? I do. I think that we can't forget that Wagner Group has been, the, it's the second best army in Ukraine. Uh, and Russia is the third best army. And the only real battlefield victories in the last year have really come at the hands of Wagner and not the Russian military. And um, the, this both embarrasses the Siloviki and it annoys Prigozhin because the Siloviki have a seat at the strategic table. And he feels like these guys, he said it, these are old, foolish, fat generals behind wooden desks. Um, and it's also been the Soviet has been rubbing it in too. Um, so in January, like I don't know, 15, 18 this, in 2023, you know, the Wagner group achieved the first Russian tactical victory in, in, in like six months in Solodar, just north of Bakhmut. And the Russian state media came out and said the Russian army achieved victory in Solodar. And then, you know, Prigozhin rants publicly. This is the first time he's on in Telegraph saying, you know, these Siloviki suck, you know. And and then the uh, the four hours later, the you know, state media corrects. It says, well, the Russian military wants to thank the brave volunteers. And that's all it says, something like that. And so this kind of takes this feud that was very much under the table and makes it very public. And it's only gotten worse. And many people started to question, like, why isn't Putin putting an end to this. Um, and, you know, I, you know, we can speculate on that, but he did lose control. And Moscow's march shows he lost control. But um, yeah, there, this has been, um, you know, the, 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 the Wagner group has been successful. And I think that one of the things that, that 
we can talk about outcomes from as of this date is that a, a renegotiated contract with Prigozhin is he's an honorary four-star general who gets a seat at the strat strategy table, which would make the Siloviki throw up. But maybe that's the price because you it's going to be really hard to win that war without Wagner. Mm. But if you do that, you also risk, you know, a palace coup from the Siloviki. Yes. And that, that brings us on really to the last area of pure, unadulterated speculation, which is, you know, what next? Because you've written that we haven't seen the end of this. Now, Prigozhin has got a sense of how undefended, you know, the great red fortress of the Kremlin actually is, that people are going to wait, hold back, see who comes out as the emergent victor. He's now in... Belarus, or maybe is, maybe isn't, but certainly a, a number of his troops are. He's getting his money and some of his ammunition back, rebuilding maybe his forces there. Lukashenko's taken a real risk, or <laughs> has Lukashenko actually benefited? The benefits to Lukashenko outweigh the risks of bringing Wagner into the fold. Well, Lukashenko is a puppet of Putin, and I don't think he has any free agency in this matter at all. Um, so there's been a lot of speculation around what's going on. Some of it, I think, is demonstra demonstrably ridiculous that this is somehow a black flag operation by Putin and Prigozhin to move the Wagner group into Belarus for a new front in Ukraine. I, you know, there are easier ways to do that, you know. Um, so there's there's theories like that. I think, um, you know, here I think are the options. I mean, basically, I, you know, the march on Moscow was indeed to renegotiate the contract uh, between Prigozhin's attempt to renegotiate the contract with Putin. Now, what they agreed on, I do not know. They agreed on something, at least temporarily, because the Moscow march stopped and they both had the same common narrative after. Right. So we know something was agreed upon. But what could happen? So Putin has attempted to drive a wedge between the Wagner group and its leadership before. He stopped doing that. But his earlier messaging was like, you, Wagner, you're loyal to Russia. We will we'll give you essentially a deal. We'll, you either get arrested and killed as traitors or we'll give you full amnesty if you, get, if you join the, the Russian army and we'll fulfill your contracts and you'll get an honorable discharge. That hasn't happened yet. Um, uh, the the other things that people are talking about is people just assume that Russian army is going to absorb um, the Wagner group. But th that's probably, you know, we'll see if that happens. Some of them might take that deal. Some of them might not. Um, it's possible that that Prigozhin renegotiates a deal with Putin. The Wagner group goes back into Ukraine. But, you know, at that point, the Siloviki might march on Moscow in some way, you know. Uh, are they going to really relinquish control to Prigozhin, who's their, as it was discussing earlier, to them as a prostitute? And I'm not anti-prostitute. It's just to them, he's an anathema to everything they stand for. Um, of course, also, if if Putin takes on, takes a pro-Siloviki side and says these guys are all traitors, we we need to be hard on them. Then you know Wagner might march again on Moscow. Mm. So there is there is you know Putin's in a box. Alternatively, I can see another situation happening where you know Wagner's best fighters are all in Africa. Prigozhin has all these deals um, 
with you know African countries like Sudan, Mali, you name it, and he exports gold and from those areas and other things into Moscow to fund this war for Putin, and it's sanction busting, and um, he could just take the best of his fighters from Belarus and his leadership and just re replant himself in uh, Sudan. Mali and become a private force, a private, like a miniature superpower in Sub-Saharan Africa, going after extractive industry. He's got extractive, he's got oil companies, gas companies, mining companies. He's got the uh, troll factory. He's got the, the muscle of Wagner. He could go take over cobalt mines and rare earth mineral mines in, in the Katanga province of the Congo. He could set himself up as a very powerful sort of medieval warlord. Heart of darkness, isn't it? This is that's Conrad right. He could be like Conrad, it? you know, like like uh, Kurtz, you know, the horror, the horror. Um, that or and or he can also plot vendetta against Moscow from there as well. So uh, and of course and also you know it's possible and this is very speculative. Okay, this the next this is very speculative that he is also negotiating with Prigozhin to and 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 the U.S. might be working through Prigozhin to say, for example, pay you know, $500 million to disappear from the conflict. And that Putin might be able to live with this and the Siloviki might be able to live with this. And Prigozhin or you know, Zelensky pays Prigozhin, you know, half a billion dollars to just leave Europe and go to Africa. And that will favor Ukraine because instead of having to fight, you, you know, Wagner and the Russian military, they had only to fight Russia. And that favors Ukraine strategically much more than F-16s or tanks or stuff like that. And going back to Machiavelli example, there's always the chance that either the master or the contractor will renege on the deal. I mean, that's always a possibility, yes. isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a so-called Mexican standoff where they have guns to their heads. But this is always the problem of uh, mercenaries and masters. And also, let's not forget that mercenaries historically between contracts, they often become bandits extortionists racketeers rapists i mean pirates uh yeah pirates privateers become pirates how johnny depp got his start um so i you know this is one but this is the world we've entered i mean how the world monopolize how states monopolize the market for force in the 18th and 19th century remains a mystery we know from after the Thirty Years' War, after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 until 1850, states gradually monopolized force. They outlawed mercenaries, which is the origin of the stigma against mercenaries. It's rather recent. And now mercenaries are, have been resurrecting slowly and then now quickly. Like Hemingway says about bankruptcy, it happens slowly and then very suddenly. And this is, I think, what the world witnessed in June in Moscow. And that, that's the rise of the British Empire, isn't it? From piracy against the uh, Spaniards, then through to sort of private companies, economic and military companies, and then to a sort of formalization through the state. I mean, we've we pioneered yes. that process. In right. <laughs> well, the British East India Company. But exactly the yes. British East India Company, I mean, who is in charge, the crown or the company? And this was always a challenge. And, and we're seeing this challenge play out today in Russia. And last, last, this could be a very short sort of yes and answer. Are there any examples from the 12th century of the mercenary warlord actually becoming the czar? Uh, yes, there's many, um, but not in Russia. So if you, so um, 
if you look at places like North Italy um, or Southern France in the Middle Ages, those were like the Afghanistan of their day. And you had warlords like it's the Sforza. Now, Sforza was a warlord that he was a, what they call back then a condottieri, which means contractor, which is what we call mercenaries today. It's a euphemism for mercenary contractor. And he took over, Sforza was his nom de guerre, his name of war, and it means force. And he took over Milan and then he just stayed there and, you know, killed the local elites. And he, and he ran a, had a Sforza dynasty for many generations in Milan. And there are many examples of warlords taking over or being a Praetorian guard and uh, so basically not leaving. Um, and so this is, uh, we see lots of examples of this. And it's also a hint to all your listeners, if you want to study conflicts analysis or get into warfare uh, as a scholar, don't become a current warfare scholar because you, you got to go to places like Sudan and Afghanistan and Somalia and do historical examples like North Italy, Southern France. It's a pro tip from me who had to learn the hard way. That, that that's a little more pleasant, isn't it, than perhaps yeah. Somalia? Dare I say it, um, <laughs> Sean? This has been a massive pleasure. I think this uh, this uh, conversation has been uh, even more thrilling than the first one we had. I'm very grateful to you for spending time to share your knowledge and insights. And I guess, as I say, watch this space and keep the popcorn handy. Yes, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, it's it's a wake up call to the world. It's not just about what happened in Moscow. It's about a larger trend of insecurity in the 21st century that not enough people see, and that's a problem.